Hello, I'm Cassidy, and welcome to the eighth episode of Series 2 of Made at UCL, the podcast. This podcast explores the world of UCL through the groundbreaking research and vital community work conducted by our staff and students. Typically, growth in our society has a positive connotation to it. We monitor the weight of newborn babies to make sure they are growing and healthy. Those first few hairs on the upper lip can mark the beginning of adolescence and growing up. As companies expand, they grow in value as well as size. But as one interviewee reminded me this month, that need for growth can be problematic, especially when you live in a society that is obsessed with growth. Harder, better, faster, stronger. Firstly, we grow. Everything has to grow. Yeah, well, of course, growth is really, really difficult. The question is why we need to grow. Why can't we be as we are? To explore our theme of growth this month, I spoke to researchers whose work deals with the encouraging, consequential, and fascinating sides of growth. In our first two segments, we'll be diving into some more sensitive topics, and listeners' discretion is advised. Firstly, we'll be discussing the issue of newborn deaths, but also how a new digital application is being incorporated in hospitals to save their lives. Then, we'll discover how the growing levels of CO2 emissions are negatively impacting our planet, but we'll also share what can be done about it. And lastly, on a much lighter note, we'll learn why there's so much more to a beer than growing hair on your face. Let's get started. Just a quick warning before we start. In the interview you're about to hear, there are references to newborn deaths. Listener discretion is advised. In our first story this month, I spoke to two people working on the same project, one close by. My name is Michelle Hayes. I am an associate professor in community and population child health at the Institute for Child Health at UCL. And I'm also a paediatrician working in East London with the East London NHS Foundation Trust. My main project is the, is the NeoTree, which I've been leading as principal investigator over the last seven years. And another a bit further away. My name is um, Simbarashi Chimuya also known as Simba for short. I'm a pediatrician and a lecturer at the University of Zimbabwe in the Faculty of Medicine and Healthcare Sciences. I've been involved in the Neotree project as a principal investigator for Zimbabwe for the past three years, since 2018. Together, they are making great strides in neonatal healthcare through the use of an application called NeoTree. And so what, what is the benefit of, of having this new digital app? So when we think of the 2.4 million newborn deaths that happen every year, models show that around 70% of those deaths could be avoided, not through 
developing new drugs or new fancy expensive equipment, but just through making sure that the basics are done for every baby everywhere. And what the Neotree aims to do is to support healthcare professionals to know how to manage the basics well for a baby and then providing the data to the healthcare professionals and also the managers and the the senior team on the ground to be able to track things like how many babies are dying, how many babies have infection, how many babies might have experienced lack of oxygen at the time of birth and that they can have all of that information readily to hand which will help not just managing the baby at the bedside, but managing the care across the hospital. And then also potentially when linking to the government electronic healthcare systems, looking at delivering high quality care across countries. Where did the idea of the NeoTree app come from? So the idea came from my experience of working in the NHS and overseas in Australia and Hong Kong, where we were trying to develop data platforms and digital systems to improve newborn care and child health and the use of routine healthcare data in trying to improve the quality of care that we deliver. And then some work that both myself and a master's student called Erin Kessler, who is a, an academic neonatal nurse practitioner now working in the States. So she was working on a project looking at education for newborn care. And so we did a, a review of causes of newborn death and so started to build the idea of of the neo tree then from there it's snowballed and then different elements of the of the intervention have been driven for example Simba um, and the team in Zimbabwe have really championed the the linkage with the electronic healthcare record system in Zimbabwe and the linkage of the admission data to laboratory data to try and improve outcomes for babies with infection so it's been a real team effort over over a long time period. Could could one of you possibly like walk us through how the the NeoTree application works? So the app is on a tablet, so the doctors will be carrying that tablet. They open up the NeoTree application and as they enter the information about that baby using the application, um, that NeoTree takes them through a certain process. There are some parameters that you need to enter. Um, sometimes you need to measure temperature, you need to measure the saturation, and then you have to take action depending on the result that you get. So there are some emergency decisions that it assists you to take. For example, if a baby is hypothermic, it tells you this baby is cold, it needs to be warmed, and then you immediately take the action to put the baby on, say, a warmer. So after you go through the admission process, then the baby will be sent to the neonatal unit for admission and received on the neonatal unit with a printout which is printed on the unit. There is a laboratory script which is used to upload blood culture results from the laboratory. So what usually used to happen is that the doctors need to walk to the laboratory to retrieve some results. It might take some, um, maybe a day or so before those results can be retrieved. So what the laboratory will do as soon as they have 
blood culture results ready, they'll upload the result on their tablet, which will immediately print on the neonatal unit so you can get the result immediately as soon as it is out. Um, you also have a discharge form, which when a baby has been discharged or um, died, captures the outcome of the baby and it links with the rest of the information captured on admission and laboratory linked through a, the neotrine number. So you have a, a record for that patient, which is complete. So you can then analyze that information from admission up to discharge and making sort of uh, decisions about what could have gone wrong, what, what you could have done in a different manner. There are so many electronic healthcare record systems that ask for data to be collected by healthcare professionals at the bedside, but the Neotree aims to actually use those data at the bedside to improve care through the data dashboards that we're developing. Each unit carries out a monthly morbidity mortality meeting, which means that they review how many babies have died, what they've died of, what were the main causes of ill health and sickness within the babies, and then what could they try and do to try and improve that. And that's what the NeoTree allows at the click of a button is we've set up a slide deck that's produced showing those sort of outputs and numbers of babies and causes of death and ill health. Can you talk about some of the challenges that you've experienced when trying to, to implement the app? Our initial challenge was around funding and culture. So to try and convince potential funders that this could be a successful venture. And we very much had to, we had to be very creative about how we obtained funding. So we were successful in some small grants in getting some private donor funding. And we also set up a, a Neotree charity that runs alongside the, the research. We've had a lot of amazing people that have worked with us pro bono. There are lots of challenges on the ground. You know, for instance, the Wi-Fi has been an issue. So we created, so it, it can be used offline and in some settings we've had to set up you know a wi-fi system we've looked at simple things like how the hardware can work you know within a setting where it's difficult to have a printer for instance the really simple parts of the neotree system have had to be really well thought through challenges around water and infection control we've thought very carefully about protocols for cleaning the neotree tablets so in zomba where there, there wasn't or, or there was very sometimes infrequent water availability, the use of hand sanitizer and it, including that infection control guideline within the use of the, the application. The, the team literally sat and watched, you know, the nurses admit a baby and reconfigured the flow of the app to better fit, the, you know, the clinical examination. So we looked at things like the number of times the the nurse would need to touch the baby to examine to limit that, that flow from tablet to baby. I think one other issue which also confronted us was, you know, you are introducing an intervention when there are already existing challenges that have not yet been solved. So someone will ask you, so what is your app going to do to solve those other problems which are already existing? So I think you need to appreciate the effort that you, 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 you put to convince 
the end users of this system that or intervention that you are introducing and the managers in that institution that the system you are introducing is worth trying. So we engaged in a number of training right from the beginning, sometimes every week or every two weeks to make sure that we bring everybody on the same platform. So right now I can say everybody enjoys using that Neotree application. You can see them happily carrying their tablets all over. So it's a nice thing to see that what we were struggling to implement some three years ago, it's now easily, I mean, part and parcel of routine routine work on our unit. I mean, it's the routine way of doing work or doing business. Nobody's even questioning why we are using tablets. Neotree is already making a huge impact in the communities helping to develop it, but Simba and Michelle are looking to the future and what they could build next. I think in terms of expanding beyond beyond the Neotree, we are also developing a similar application in the form of a mummy tree, which will then link with the Neotree. And we have a more complete data for a mother and a baby together. If you would like to learn more about the Neotree app and or donate to help with its development and expansion, visit Neotree, that's N-E-O-T-R-E-E dot org. Over the last few years, we've seen extreme bouts of weather shifts. From the polar vortex to the large number of hurricanes in the Atlantic to the recent wildfires in Greece and North America and flooding in the UK, all of this is thought to be due to the growth of CO2 in the Earth's atmosphere. With all of this going on and the UN's climate conference just around the corner, we asked our next guest, an expert on the subject, to sit down and chat with us about why this is happening and what can be done. This is... Philip Pogafon Strandman. He is a professor at UCL in the Earth and Science Department and a geochemist. This means he looks at the chemistry of the Earth, in my case, how the elements behave in biology and geology and generally in the Earth. Yeah. And then part of it is like looking at the history of the Earth as well. How is it that looking at those past climate events can kind of tell you what's to come? Well, there are the, the climate has been quite variable in the past. We've had times when, you know, there's been much hotter than now, much colder than now, but also periods of very rapid warming, which is obviously what we're most interested in because we can use them as analogies for, for future climate change. So, for example, we wouldn't know about ocean acidification without looking at past climate events. What, what, what is ocean acidification? So the, the, the oceans are a big pot of carbon. So uh, um, a lot of the, the CO2 we've been pumping into the atmosphere is, is now in the oceans and is, is stored there, dissolved in the water for several thousand years. So it's helping us in a way that it's, it's preventing the CO2 concentration in the atmosphere going up quite as much as it would otherwise. But the consequence of that is that the oceans become more acidic because of the CO2 dissolved in them. So this is what's happening now. We're sort of killing off the corals in off Australia, the Great Barrier Reef, for example, these coral bleaching events is due to the oceans becoming more acidic. Um, and that 
is not only a consequence of, of climate change, but also means that the oceans can store less carbon in the future as well. And then also part of your work looks, looks into the plants as well. Could you expand on that? In very broad, long-term scales, so the, the scales of more than maybe 10,000 years, CO2 is added by volcanism. And so a volcano goes off and that adds CO2 to the atmosphere, which would create warming. And then CO2 is removed through either limestone formation. So the atmospheric carbon is then locked up in limestone. And the other is what's known as organic carbon, which is plants through photosynthesis take up carbon. So the carbon in the bark of trees and the wood of trees is carbon from the atmosphere. So that's how trees lock up carbon CO2 to help uh, mitigate the climate. The problem, of course, is that when the trees die and decay, that carbon goes straight back into the atmosphere. So that's why you know planting forests helps you on scales, you know, the life of a tree 50 years or 100 years or so, but not more than that. What happens when things like recently, we've had all these fires, for example, in the US and Greece, how does that affect the climate? So you're, you're increasing the CO2 concentration in the atmosphere from carbon that was stored in the trees. At the same time, obviously, you're, you're decreasing the amount of tree. So there's less carbon being removed um, from the atmosphere at the same time. Obviously, there have been forest fires uh, in the past throughout Earth history, but we've never had probably quite as little forest as we have now. It's never been at risk anyway through other activities such as warming. I mean, the part of the, part of the issue of being a geologist is that uh, you look through Earth history and you see, you know, there are big mass extinction events in the past. And they, you know, some of them have wiped out almost 95% of all life. You know, and some of them have been through, through warming. And the, the problem is that the Earth recovers but the species that live there don't. And the, the ones, the species that go extinct most quickly, the ones that are most adapted to the current life, and that's currently us. So it's not, it's not that things just get a little bit warmer, it's that all the crops we depend on, um, you know, whether that be potato or corn or wheat or maize, they grow less. So we have food problems, we have less fresh water because the monsoon fails. So the, the, the implication is what, what we're doing to the climate is, is our problem humans will suffer most of all and all the species that you know we interact with what can we do to to try to help prevent some of these fires and natural disasters that are taking place well we have to have less co2 in the atmosphere is the easy answer so that means becoming more efficient reducing dependence on fossil fuels in particular you can renew using renewables but also we're now past the point where that's enough so we have to actually remove CO2 from the atmosphere now. It's become quite clear over the last sort of 10 years or so that even if we reduced our emissions to zero now, that's no longer sufficient to prevent dangerous climate change. So there are a whole host of different ways to remove CO2 from the atmosphere. The issue is these are all largely still in experimental uh, phases and also just the scale of how you'd have to do this. So if you imagine your CO2 removal industry would have to be then as large as all industry that releases CO2. So the hope is that if we start removing, you know, a reasonable chunk, we'll buy ourselves a bit more time and then we can sort of work from there. But it, as, as we've seen, especially this year, in the last couple of years with what's happening with climate, it's a, a deadline that is very fast approaching. 
I never, I, I guess I always think of reducing emissions, but I, I didn't think of removing it. How, I, what are some examples of ways that they can remove CO2 from the atmosphere? The, the easiest way that potentially is to try and increase the, the natural methods by which the Earth does it anyway. So one way is through weathering. So that is when, when you dissolve uh, rocks on land with water. So basically what we see in every river valley um, where you know, the rock has been carved away by the, the river. That dis- dissolution of the rock actually removes, is probably the main method by which CO2 is removed naturally from the atmosphere. And so the idea is if you take a lot of rock and grind it up into powder and then plough it into fields, that would remove CO2. So that's one, that's one method that is now being trialled in sort of field trials all around the world. And um, there are others like making limestone artificially in things like groundwater or the oceans to, to lock up CO2. There are potential methods of pumping CO2, liquid CO2, back into oil wells. You can fertilise the oceans, potentially put in iron and grow more, more life in the oceans. But people are slightly worried about that because if you do something to one part of the ocean, it tends to have consequences for the rest of the ocean. So there are lots of different methods of being trialled. There are more than that, but they're, they're all in the, in the very much in the pilot stage. And so the, the other worry is that we just be too late to get this stuff done fast enough for, to, to avoid consequences we're already seeing now. It's a bit of a scary thought, the idea that we might be too late and there's nothing we can do. And constantly seeing this and knowing this can be a bit of a downer. I've known people who have studied environmental sciences and at times have found it a bit depressing. What keeps you motivated and hopeful when researching climate change? Um, I don't know that I am particularly hopeful. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. I mean, it's part, I mean, when you're doing a particular project, you can, you can, you know, the, the, the goals are much easier because they're the ones that, you know, in terms of understanding what's going on or getting it published or, or something like that. In terms of the bigger picture, I guess the motivation is trying to do what you what you can do to stop it happening. Especially, you know, you, if you have children or whatever else, you want to try and at least prevent the worst from from hitting them or me, in fact. I mean, by now it's it's so close that it's it's my the, my life as well. But overall I sort of I sort of go between thinking we won't make it to thinking, well maybe we have a chance. I sort of swing back and forth between that depending on the last bit of political soundbite I've heard or not that uh, change of things. Uh, so now that we're obviously in this very dire state, and then there's supposed to be the UN climate conference that's coming up soon, uh, what are you hoping that are going to be some of the things that come up in this conference and are going to be addressed? Well, I mean, clearly we need to reduce emissions. There needs to be more. I mean, there's been lots of pledges in you know, both the UK and the EU the words have been cheap and the action is is a lot more expensive, but it really needs to, to happen. And then the other thing is we need these, these negative emissions, these removal processes need to be done properly rather than just funded through scientific research. They actually have to really take off industrially. And the one way to do that is to increase the carbon price. So the carbon dioxide is treated as a pollutant in some areas like the European Union and was Australia for a while, but no longer. And so the cost of ton of, of, per tonne of CO2 emitted needs to be there as a tax, effectively a carbon tax. And once that becomes over a certain threshold, then it's, it becomes financially worthwhile to do all these negative emissions 
uh, with removal stuff, and it isn't really yet. So that has to be a political uh, decision to do that. If, like me, you're worried that you're not doing enough to help combat climate change, it may help to know that the UCL is engaged in a number of initiatives right now. For example, the university has pledged to plant 10,000 square meters of biodiverse green space in Bloomsbury by 2024. If you'd like to support this project or learn about ones like it, visit www.ucl.ac.uk forward slash climate dash change. When my first whiskers appeared, love held me enthralled even more than any of my gods. This lovely excerpt was from one of the pieces our next guest, Seb Coxon, wrote about in his soon-to-be-released book, Beards and Texts. Seb is... I'm a member of the German department, which is part of this bigger school of languages. We call it Selks. I've worked there for about 20 years, basically uh, a lecturer. And my speciality is medieval literature. And his particular interests in these literatures are quite unique. So what is it about hair, beards, and baldness that you're interested in? There's this fabulous German heroic epic. It's kind of like the German equivalent to what you might say Homer or Beowulf in in Anglo-Saxon. There's one absolutely fantastic scene in which a bunch of warriors lament the death of someone they've just killed because he was a great warrior too. This is the kind of thing that heroes do in all heroic epics. They kill each other and then they give each other compliments. But in this one scene, there's just the the narrator, the poet describes how the tears pour down their faces and over their beards. And I've taught this text for a number of years. And each time, my question has always been at that point in the class, what do you think the point of referring to the beards is? So I started doing that in that class. And then because I did it in that class, I kept on noticing whenever beards were referred to in other stuff I was teaching. So it's actually come through teaching because it became a kind of habit of mine, almost like a running joke. You know, I'm going to ask this class about beards in this story and see what they say. Why are beards a particularly significant motif? Because they are so, they, they, they function as gender markers. So if you're interested in gender, of, of course, you know, gender covers a wide spectrum these days. But if we're talking about the cultural construction of gender, particularly in literature of the past, it's one of those motifs which is heavily laden with gender-specific meaning. Obviously, it tends to be masculine. So the subtitle of my book is actually Images of Masculinity. And beards within that context tend to be very significant because as soon as you start, say, analyzing images of the man, manliness, masculinity, you realize, of course, that these things are very uh, have a hierarchy, that not all men are equal, not all masculinities are equal. And actually, uh, culture privileges certain masculinities over others. And if you look at medieval literature or literature from the past, very often masculinities are either privileged or disparaged with reference to facial hair, beards, or perhaps their absence, the inability to grow a beard, the color of that beard, And what happens to that beard? The color of that beard. Why the color of that beard? There's a very long-standing prejudice against the color red. The the cardinal example of that is Judas in the Middle Ages was popularly imagined to have a red beard. I mean, it is slightly culture-specific so that you find in Celtic cultures, for example, if one were to look at medieval Irish, there isn't that stigma attached. But if you look at other European medieval cultures, famously wicked people are given red hair. 
so in this understanding this beards and German medieval period, was there like a particular kind of beard that was the, you know, the ideal beard? I guess I picture that a big, full, bushy beard, considering what we were talking about. But Well, you would think that, wouldn't you? Because, of course, to have a bushy beard is to be virile. In fact, the best example of that from the Middle Ages isn't German. The best example of that is actually uh, Middle English, Sir Garwin and the Green Knight. The Green Knight has this incredible bushy beard and derides Arthur and his court as being like beardless children. So in comparison to him, they just have no virility whatsoever. So you would think that, but of course, beards were also subject to, or the, the, the wearing of the beard was subject to fashion. So what you find is that, in fact, unrestrained beard growth was often associated with wildness, lack of culture, lack of civilization. So if there was such a thing, and, and these things change, so th th there was no such thing as an ideal beard really that applied in the early middle ages the high middle ages and the late middle ages but if there was one it would be the fairly neat beard all this talk of beard style and prejudice fascinated me but i had to move on to the subject at hand the book so there's i think there's four poetic texts in it if i remember right why did you choose those four there's four main chapters which have got a kind of central idea and for each of those main chapters, I've taken a lead text. I actually call them milestone texts. <laughs> but um, so each chapter has a main milestone text. Those are the four you're talking about. But the way the chapters are written us, we start with that one, go into that one in great detail, including manuscript pictures if there are those. And then I kind of go and broaden out as far as possible, finding all sorts of material which relates to each chapter, then like a huge firework display, it sort of bursts into color with reference to all sorts of others. So in each chapter, I then try and talk about as many other different works as possible. The idea is so that the four main chapters have these biggish ideas, humanity, you know, men from around the world from different cultures have one thing in common, beards. Another idea is majesty, so that, that's beards and kings. Another idea is beards mentioned in the context of teaching processes, so teaching and learning and authority. And then the fourth one is actually laughter and beards. So that's the role played by beard references in stuff that was we think was meant to make people laugh. And then what you discover there, of course, is that all the stuff which is treated seriously in, in all the things I've been talking before, like kings, humanity, teaching, you start looking at comedic things, all of this is then turned on its head and precisely the opposite, or these things are demolished quite deliberately. And you, you, you see a lot of fun is had with the beards of kings, but in comedy, then it's all about disrespect and undermining the position of the king. So there's all of that going on. And then I have a kind of a little chapter on Jesus. And I've always wanted to do this. And I never thought I would ever see it in print, a chapter called Jesus's Beard. A crown of thorns was put on his head so that a torrent of blood poured down through his beard. Sorry, you have to talk about Jesus' beard. With Jesus' beard, you actually have a number of these things all combined. You have humanity, you have kingship, and you have authority and teaching. And, and so the idea then was to have a look at Jesus' beard in various things, poems, stories, plays, and to see which, if any, of these aspects are brought to the fore linked to the beard. I think I think of images I've seen of Jesus and I think of like the long beard, but it is very like manicured in the way that you were talking about before. So it like has that sense of, I guess, prestige. Oh yeah. So when you're talking about Jesus, the trouble is, of course, that he's pretty special. So how do you convey how special he is? Is he a God? Is he a man? Well, actually he's kind of both. 
there's a whole batch of poems, a poetic tradition about describing Jesus's beauty, his physical perfection. And so they emphasize just how soft his hair was, even the hair in his beard. And what, what you find is as you get deeper into the Middle Ages, they become more and more interested in not in his perfection, but in his suffering because that suffering was what you could identify with. So in the later Middle Ages, it was the suffering of Christ. It was the Christ of the passion. It was the Christ who was being subjected to tortures. So there are hundreds, no, I'm under, I'm under selling it, thousands of depictions in stories of the passion of Christ. So let's just say, I don't know, modest estimate. I read a hundred for this chapter. There's one, one instance in which a poet links the beard reference so you get the crown of thorns you get the blood always you get blood you get crown of thorns always 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 and then this one poet has had this brilliant piece of inspiration so that a torrent of blood poured down through his beard and little did he know that 700 years later some other complete idiot <laughs> would have nothing better to do with his life than pour over his story some poet had the idea oh you know what but where does the blood go it goes on his beard and that's important because kings have beards and Jesus was the king. Even though the, the, the soldiers are trying to tell him he's not a king by humiliating him as if he was a king, but he really is a king. It's interesting making that comparison with Jesus because it's just something that I hadn't really, never really thought about. So, yeah. So getting into maybe like today, how can learning about things like facial hair, like Jesus' facial hair, or, or facial hair in the medieval period affect our understanding of masculinity today? Well, I, I think it helps us to understand that when we're looking at gender, it's, it, in a way you could say what I've got here is a test case. It, it helps us to understand that these things are nuanced and differentiated. The, the, the question in therefore is, you know, what is the value in learning about the history of our culture or culture? Because what you really want is to be able to win some critical distance over your own culture by looking at other cultures. Now, you could do that temporarily, but people still have bodies. So I, I'm interested in the representation of bodies and how bodies are used to convey meanings, social meanings, cultural meanings. And that goes today as it has done in the past. These things change in the form they may take. The, the meanings which are being conveyed, but that principle of communication via bodies that you communicate in all sorts of ways hasn't, is there, and will remain there until we all become brains in jars, I guess. So that it, it's about the history of the body. And you could argue that, that the beard is a really interesting part of the body to look at because it carries me, it obviously carries meaning. And yet you can deconstruct perhaps or, or, or dig into the obvious meaning that you think you, you associate with it. If you are intrigued by the idea of medieval German beards and the poetic texts that pay homage to them, Seb's book, Beards and Texts, is available online for free from September 8th at uclpress.co.uk. In this month's episode, we learned about the development of an app that is saving newborn babies' lives through information sharing, and how even though the CO2 growth we see right now isn't great, we just might have the ability to learn from Earth's history and develop new technologies to save our future. And finally, by reflecting on something as simple as facial hair in the past, we can start to understand things as complicated as masculinity in the present. Thank you for listening to Made at UCL, the podcast. To listen to previous episodes or find out more about life at UCL, 
visit www.ucl.ac.uk forward slash may dash at dash UCL or subscribe wherever you listen to this podcast. This episode was presented by me, Cassidy Martin, and produced by Karis Bradley. It featured music from the Blue Dot Sessions and additional sounds from freesound.org. Special thanks to Michelle, Simba, Seb, and Philip for sharing their time and expertise. This podcast is brought to you by UCL Minds, bringing together UCL knowledge, insight, and expertise through events, digital content, and activities that are open to everyone. I hope you enjoyed listening as much as I enjoyed interviewing our guests this month. Thanks again for stopping by. Take care of yourself and each other.